Good morning. Um, even though this is fixed mic, I still feel very short, so I'm going to bring it down to my face. So I think I am very short. Um, yes, good morning. Thank you for letting me speak this morning. Um, as Patrick said, we have been doing a lot of multitasking, um, so if I just keel over in the middle of the sermon, someone come and just fan my face, I'll, I'll be fine. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's a great blessing to be sharing God's Word with you today. Uh, last time I was here, well, I was here, last time I spoke, um, I spoke on Romans uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 17. Now, that's a, that's a colossus of a letter. It's a, that's a mighty letter by Paul, rich with gospel truth and heart-stirring theology. And um, I was really struck by Gilbert Lennox's talk um, recently, where he tried to encourage us to make a habit of reading through a book of, of the Bible as it was written. Just from start to finish, no breaks for verses. But uh, I defy you to try and do that with Romans, because I think if I tried to do that, I would need to lie down in a dark room with a wet towel on my face, because every verse is packed. Um, but being a sucker for punishment, I'm going to go back to Romans again, and we're going to keep going with Romans chapter 1. Um, last time I spoke on, obviously, verses 1 to 17, and they contain the key verses for the whole book, as Jeff told us in his uh, overview of the, of the letters, um, verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And in these 17 verses, I focused on three concepts, being called, the gospel itself, and faith. And I tried to come up with a sort of a, a pithy summary sentence, which went a bit like this. Christian believers are called to a gospel of faith that leads to righteousness. Christian believers are called to a gospel of faith that leads to righteousness. A bit of extra stuff that's righteousness not by ourselves, but it's righteousness given entirely by God. And Jan, uh, Jan, sorry, Viv prayed that very, very well for us this morning. Well, this week, we're completing chapter 1. We're going to do verses 18 to 32. And this week, I have entitled the talk, The Foolish Exchange. The Foolish Exchange. How the unrighteous suppression of God's truth leads to debauchery and death. Talk about a change in tone, hey? <laughs> the power of the gospel and the foolish exchange. Debauchery and death. We were talking about encouragement just a few verses ago, verses ago, and now this hard-hitting gut punch. Now, what is going on there? Well, let's read the passage and pray the Lord helps us to hear his word for our lives. So I'm reading the ESV, but uh, verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1 of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For, for, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the, creation, the, the creature rather than the, the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men com committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to, to do what ought not to be done. They were, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Amen. In 1804, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, released a small publication, about 42 pages, called The Philosophy of Jesus. If that sounds reverent, it wasn't meant to be. He literally cut pieces of the Gospels that he found acceptable and stuck them together in a format he was happy to read. In an article in Christianity Today, Daniel Silliman writes about Jefferson. He said he had extracted, reduced, and cut down the Gospel until the only thing left was the most sublime and benevolent code of morals that has ever been offered to man. He literally cut the text up verse by verse, and the good parts stuck out, quote, as diamonds in a dunghill. And it, was an, it was another author, Peter Manso, write, who wrote, Jefferson's is a hard gospel. The blind do not see. The lame do not walk. The multitudes will remain hungry if loaves and fishes must be multiplied to feed them. Even those who look to, to Jesus for forgiveness of sins are left wanting. Now, I, I can imagine that if we were to do something like Pre President Jefferson, and try and cut out parts of the Bible that we find hard to read, this passage would be one of them. I think it'd be very easy to just get a scalpel, like I have at work, and cut out a few of these verses, chuck them in the bin, and never look at them ever again. Because they're hard. But as Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you're a servant of God here today, his word is a lamp unto our feet, and we must not run to put it out. So take a deep breath, we'll turn to our passage, and we'll hear what it has to say. So briefly today, I want to go through the structure of the passage, then delve into the three layers in Paul's argument, and then bring home two applications. So firstly, the structure. Paul's structure contains an opening thesis statement in verse 18, a universal truth, then three examples of his argument in practice. So we'll look at these each in turn. All right. So if one, so if Romans 1, 117 that I talked about in June was a word of encouragement for those who believe, verses 18 to 32 are a scathing indictment of sinners. Having finished the first section with the righteous shall live by faith, Paul then contrasts this by expressing how the unrighteous live. So verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness 
suppress the truth. God is angry. And he is angry because his creations are living in, in unrighteousness and suppressing truth. Commentators um, agree that this is the start of a longer section from uh, 118 to 320 in the, in the letter that basically details how humans have rebelled and fallen away from God. As Warren Wearsby writes, the theme of Romans is the righteousness of God, but Paul had to begin in 118 to 320 with the unrighteousness of man. So Paul makes it clear that we're going to be taking a ride into the darkest, darkness of the human heart and what that means for our relationship with God. But once he establishes his thesis statement, he goes about, down, he, he, he goes about breaking down the argument. In verses 19 to 20, he explains that everyone, and he means everyone, knows that God exists. This is universal certainty. No one, and I mean no one, can claim ignorance. Now that is not a very comfortable statement in today's world, but it is what the Bible says, and it is true. Humans cannot have any excuse when they live against God because, as it says in verse 18, they have suppressed his truth. They have known it and they have suppressed it. Well, how do they do that? He gives three big, ex big examples of this suppression and each example contains an action and a reaction. Same structure for each one. And those actions and reactions are exchange and being given up. So exchange and being given up. And we'll go to these next. So now that we know the structure of this particular section, I just want to break down the passage so we can really see just how far from God's standards we have gone and just how immeasurably precious the gospel therefore is. Tim Keller's commentary on Romans chapters 1 to 7 says, Romans 1 to 8, 118 to 320 presents us with a dark picture of hum humanity. Yet, it is the backdrop on which the bright jewel of the gospel shines all the brighter. So hold on to that brightness and we'll crack on. I have three points to cover and the three points are, they knew God was real. Point one, they knew God was real. Point two, they exchanged God. And point three, God gave them up. So they knew God was real, they exchanged God, God gave them up. So point one, they knew God was real. Verses 19 to, 19 to 20, read them with me here now. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Recently on our Wednesday evenings, we've been reading uh, Truth on Fire and been discussing it, which I hope you have been reading. Jeff asked me to say that to you also. Chapter four is entitled, God is never far away. And in it, Adam Ramsey says, no matter where there is, God is. Because he is not confined to a body and because he alone is infinite, there is no space in existence that he is not. And when we realize that he indeed is everywhere, we cannot but be amazed by the evidence of his presence. Reading that, chap reading that chapter in that book took me straight to Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Now, one of the common arguments uh, atheists might employ against Christianity 
is that God is morally twisted for condemning people who would never have heard of Jesus. For example, they might say, what about those who are born in the jungle and die before they hear about Christ? Are they condemned unfairly? Surely God is twisted. Well, Paul here is blowing that argument out the water. He is saying in no uncertain terms that God is visible in his own creation. He is not playing morality mind games, but he has made himself known and continues to do so. And ultimately, and this is the hard pill to swallow, he is sovereign over every soul out there. Therefore, there's no excuse. And even more importantly, in the hypothetical situation of someone else, irrelevant to Paul's readers and those around them in Rome, because they have even less excuse, having heard the gospel, having heard about God, and being in a metropolis of knowledge, philosophy, science, and technology. So they knew God. They know God. They have no excuse. Final answer. Point two, they exchanged God. Paul now details what people did with this knowledge of God that they were given, and immediately it isn't good. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. From here followed a downward spiral. This lack of recognition of God leads to futile thinking, then foolish darkened hearts, delusions of grandeur, and finally, exchange of the glory of God for useless idols in verses 21 to 23. The word futile in verse 21 may also be translated as worthless or fruitless or empty. That's from the Greek word. Instead of knowing or using their minds to know the eternal, infinite, unsearchable God, that instead, they decide to empty their minds and know nothing. Romans Romans, 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 Romans 11.34 says, Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Yet, in Jesus, God himself came down to earth to make himself known, to give us knowledge of him. Humans were given access to know the mind of God, but like fools, they exchanged him for images of man, birds, animals, and bugs. It is just laughably pathetic. But Paul goes on to drive another hammer blow and another. They keep exchanging God for more and more things. In verse 25, they exchanged the truth, of God, truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And in verse 28, they, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Literally, they put him out of their minds. The behavior becomes more and more pathetic. The exchange is more and more futile. Firstly, God's truth is exchanged for a, for a lie, complete fallacy, and then complete apathy. Total ignorance of God. First, it was God's glory that was thrown in the bin, then his truth, and now essentially all of him. John Piper in his sermon series on Romans calls this the dark exchange Stolen a little bit from him because I call it the foolish exchange, but the dark exchange goes on. It takes about four sermons to go through the dark exchange, so just having one for me today. He breaks it, he, he breaks it down into two big parts idolatry and homosexuality. And we'll, brief, and we'll briefly look at these in turn. In the first exchange, idolatry, humans exchange the glory of God for the images of things God has made. In his examples, Paul uses 
the things of nature. But in our context, idolatry takes many, many shapes. Money, career, family, a sports team, a luxury car like Nigel drives, anything for which our hearts yearn for more than God, that we spend our waking moments agonizing over more than God, that, plain and simple, is idolatry. Now, in and of themselves, none of those things are bad. God made them. We can use them. But when they take the place of the glory of God, they displace the only true object of our worship. So that's the first exchange. The second then, humans exchange the truth of God for a lie and serve the creature rather than, rather than the creator. When Paul says creature here, he means the desires of our own hearts. We the creatures served ourselves rather than our creator. In doing so, the desires of their hearts consume them and they commit sexual sin in chasing dishonorable passions, as it says in verse 26. And he goes about explaining the biggest example for him in this is homosexual activity. Now in today's world, and in the Western church especially, this statement is highly charged with controversy. There are many, many people and many churches who would want to wipe this out of the Bible, but the Bible clearly states that sex was made to be between one man and one woman within the context of marriage. All sex, whether it's between man and man, man and woman, or woman and woman, outside of this is sin. But by exchanging the truth of the Bible that I have just quoted for lies, the unrighteous run after the passions of their own hearts, their creaturely passions, and commit sexual anarchy. I don't have time to go through it in depth, but I will say a couple of things on this now. The modern world will, will argue Surely following your own heart, that's what we've been taught, and that can lead only to your own happiness and joy. Surely, surely, we should just keep on following our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Paul is at pains here to implicate both men and women in shameful, unnatural sexual acts. And by unnatural, he does not mean of nature, he means as God ordained. John Piper mentions in his series that what the focus, sorry, that, that what lies at the root of homosexual sin is exchanging God for satisfaction of their own cravings. The idol for humans becomes themselves. And so they seek to glorify and worship those that may appear like themselves, namely men running after men and women running after women. We don't really have time to work through all those nuances that are involved in sexual sin, especially with homosexuality in our culture. But suffice to say that Paul is not labeling homosexual activity as worse than any other sexual sin, or indeed any sin. All of it has caused us to fall away from God. He's also not saying that those who suffer from homosexual attraction are immediately condemned for their orientation. Again, John Piper's sermon is very helpful in this, but he points out that there are a plethora of biological, social, hormonal, and psychological reasons why some people from an early age are inclined towards same-sex attraction. But similarly, 
Others are biologically, socially, hormonally, and psychologically primed towards addiction, anger, laziness, and pride, to name but a few. Crucially, it is the giving in to these desires against God's wishes that is condemned. It is those who actively engage in sexual sin who worship the creature, the object of their sexual desires, more than the God who created them. I have to pause here and say that I have a number of good Christian friends who suffer, they call themselves suffering, from same-sex attraction and regularly would cry to me about what they have been dealt with in life. That does not make them any less of people, doesn't make them any less of a struggle for them to live lives that are honoring to God. But Paul is clearly stating here that our hearts are deviant and that expresses itself in many, many ways. But this is just a very clear example of where the heart of God has been broken in us. Now the big truth behind both of these exchanges is that human beings were built to worship. When the object of their worship is not the God who made them, their worship is distorted. As Tim Keller says, what happens when people refuse to acknowledge and depend on God as God? We don't stop worshiping. We simply change the object of our worship. There has to be something which captures our imagination and our allegiance. And whatever that thing is, it becomes our bottom line, the thing we cannot live without, defining and validating everything that we do. So point two, they exchanged God. So finally, point three, God gave them up. What's the result of the exchange? Well, it would seem fair that after this blatant rebellion, the best answer is punishment. Timeouts, no treats, being locked in a room, all the things that I th threaten Samuel with daily when he's being naughty because, the because he's almost two and the terrible twos are upon us. But actually God's answer to the dark exchange is not that. It's letting them run free. I use free in a very loose sense of the word. He, he, he allows the rebellious to wallow in their rebellion. It's the concept of sinking deeper and deeper into a swamp of toffee, caramel. It tastes delicious, but eventually it will suffocate you to death. Wearsby states, because of their sin, God gave them up which means that he permitted them to go on in their sins and reap the sad consequences. God revealed his wrath, not by sending fire from heaven, but by abandoning sinful men to their lustful ways. Surely at this stage, after all that I've said, and the place we're in now, deep sunk deep into that pit, they would realize their folly and turn back to God. But no. Paul shows us in verses 28 to 32 that the greatest and darkest exchange of all was that of their minds. Verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do, ought, to, to, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, 
They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to, to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This list of 21 sins, and there's 21 I counted, is the final trump card. All the wickedness of the human heart is seen in this list, and not one of us is exempt. If these people thought they might make it because they weren't idol worshippers or sexual deviants, they now have nowhere to hide. The mind given to them by God, able to conceive of his love and his grace and his glory, has been tossed into the mire of evil and allowed to baste in all its blackness. So much so that not only do they do these acts of unrighteousness, but they actively applaud those who do them. You can't get, get much more damning than that. And I use that word damning literally. Paul is making it very clear that, that the human heart and mind, when left to its own devices, will, will run the farthest away from God it can and quickly. And God let it. Well, how can we apply this to our lives now? We're right in the pit. So I, I want to point out two things by way of application. The first one, this is me. This is me. This is us. Paul intentionally covers as much ground as possible to show his readers that no one is free from blame. If I'm honest with myself, I can see my own heart in that list of, tw of 21 things. Paul uses the pronoun they in his writing. And in my headings, I have been careful to use that as well, to be true to the text. But in real terms, I would rename my headings as follows. We know God is real. We exchanged God. And God gave us up. John chapter 3, verse 19 says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Whenever I or we try to inflate our own abilities or good deeds, this passage is meant to burst that bubble pretty quickly. In a world where we're reassured that we are essentially good, sometimes get it a bit wrong, but we're essentially good, sometimes get it a bit off, the truth about the human heart is much more cautionary. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you and he's speaking to the church, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But here is my final, most crucial point. The next verse in 1 Corinthians 6 is verse, is verse, is verse 11, and it says... And that is what some of you were. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So final application, final point. In the face of all this realism, in the middle of this brutal exploration of the human heart, there is a little glimmer of hope. Look back to Romans 1, 25. It contains the words, 
the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. My final point, bless the Lord for the gospel. Bless the Lord for the gospel. We recall Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel breaks into this darkness of the human heart like a lighthouse on a pitch black night. We're all at sea. Nothing we can do can save our sinking ship. But the truth of the resurrected Christ, who died for our sin, so that we can be right with God our Father, should bring us to our knees in gratitude. I want to finish with these words from Paul in Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, comprehend, that's using your mind to know, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The readers of Romans 1, 18 to 32, and us today, when they read that, if they truly realized just how foolish and unrighteousness they or we are, Surely it makes the gospel of grace so much more precious to who you are now in Christ. May that be your experience here today, whether you're Christian or not. May you know that the love of Christ, it captures you, it enthralls you, and it brings you complete and utter repentance and dependence on God. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.